Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here. And um, we're going to be continuing our series through the gospel according to Mark. And uh, we're at the continental divide of this book. We're in Mark chapter 8, uh, around the halfway point. And we'll be looking at verse 27 and following. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's page 844. That's 844. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. While you're turning there, a couple things wanted to make you aware of. First of all, in uh, four weeks, March 24th, uh, we will be having baptisms. We have two people that are getting baptized already, and if that is something that you're interested in, if you have not publicly identified with Christ and His people through baptism, um, obviously we would strongly encourage you to do that. If you have any questions, if you're interested um, in being baptized, we would encourage you to sign up. You can um, email any of the elders, or you could reach out to Michelle, um, or even better, just a simple email, info at missiochurch.org, and it will get to uh, one of our emails, and we'd love to follow up with you. Or you can talk to someone at the Connection Center. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight, uh, we had an insert last week with the bulletin. I don't believe it went out today, but um, this is going to be the last week that we um, mentioned this. Uh, there is a uh, fostering and adoption meeting at Beacon Baptist Church on February 27th at 7 p.m. I think of this verse in James, James 1.27 where uh, I think it's in the NIV, it says it this way, that uh, religion that is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress. And so there's this meeting, uh, several churches are coming together. It's an informational meeting, no commitment, but um, it is something where if you're interested in fostering, adopting, being a wraparound family, serving families that are doing this, etc., cetera, um, that's at a partner of ours, Beacon Baptist Church on uh, February 27th at 7 p.m. All right. Well, hopefully uh, you're now at Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and uh, I'm going to read our passage for this morning. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." 
And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this word, and we pray now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand your truth. Incline our hearts. Give us understanding. Satisfy us with your word and your promises this morning. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Challenge and convict us where we need to be challenged and convicted. May your Holy Spirit work through your word, convincing and convicting us this morning. We love you, and it's in Christ's precious name that we pray together. Uh, Amen. All right, 1983, Apple Inc., you know, that big company, like one of the most successful companies ever, that company, 1983, is on the hunt for a president for their company. Steve Jobs was too young at the time. Jobs was one of the co-founders of the company and a bit too volatile at the time. Now, others would say he was even volatile in the 2000s, but at this time, young Steve Jobs Very volatile, too young, so he can't run the company. And so he's on the search to find who could help lead the company, and he had his crosshairs set on a man named John Scully. Now, Scully was the president at the time of Pepsi, and Jobs would not let Scully out of his sight. And so he was pursuing them and pursuing them and pursuing them. And eventually, the discussions got to a point where they were negotiating salary and a signing bonus and things like that, which you could imagine were easily in the millions, even at that time. But Scully was a bit uncertain. He wasn't sure if Apple was a good fit for him. He had it really good at Pepsi and didn't know if he was going to make uh, the leap. And so the deal was on the fence one evening when Jobs and Scully were on a um, two-story penthouse in New York City right outside of Central Park, and they're having this conversation. And Jobs says to Scully, you're the best person I've ever met. I know you're a perfect fit for Apple, and Apple deserves the best. But Scully still wasn't sure, so he suggested that maybe they should just be friends and he could try to mentor Jobs, and if he had any questions, Jobs could always uh, reach out and ask for some advice. But uh, as Scully went on to say, anytime you're in New York, I'd love to spend time with you. I can give you advice from the sidelines. And at this point in the discussion, Jobs just drops his head stares down at his feet, and and Jobs had one of these trademark moves where he would just, I mean, be silent well beyond like when it turned awkward, and and then some, and then some, and then some. And so in a classic Steve Jobs moment, he's staring down at his feet, and, and this weighty, uncomfortable pause, he then looks up at Scully and issues a challenge that would haunt Scully for days. Job said to Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? Scully felt like he had been punched in the stomach and he couldn't say no and eventually he joined the Apple team. Now that, that question, that haunting question, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water 
or do you want a chance to change the world? I mean, it was a great question, a bit manipulative and a bit melodramatic, but a great question. I mean, the opportunity to change the world. And in, in many ways, Apple has done just that, to think iPod, think iPhone, think iPad, one of the most successful companies that America, the world, has ever seen. From a business standpoint, it doesn't get any bigger, it doesn't get any better than Apple. And yet, when you compare Apple Inc., changing the world, to how Jesus and His followers have changed are changing, and will change the world. I mean, it's, it's unparable, un- unparalleled. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's not even the same game. I mean, how, how Jesus would go about changing the world. He would take humanity made in the image of God, and He would come, offer up Himself as a sacrifice that that humanity who's made in God's image could be restored, reconciled, brought back into a relationship with their Creator God, how His followers would change the world. I mean, they would take that message, the good news of that message, the gospel message to the ends of the earth and are still doing it in order to reconcile souls back to their heavenly Father. Now, there isn't any earthly signing bonus for Jesus' followers. Well, I guess maybe there is. We see it in our passage. It's, it's suffering, it's hardship, it's carrying one's cross, and it's denying oneself. But there is an everlasting, eternal signing bonus, and that is life and life to the full and reconciliation back to the Father. You, you see in our passage this morning, what made me think of that interaction between Jobs and Scully is, is you have this, this glimpse, this picture, this confession, a challenge even of how, how the world would be changed. The world would be changed by Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, sent by the Father, the Son of God. But that Christ was a suffering Christ, and then that suffering Christ was going to issue a challenge to His followers to suffer as well, and that is how the world would be changed. Well, here's the main idea of our passage this morning. Jesus is identified as the suffering Messiah, and whoever wishes to be a disciple of the suffering Messiah must or will suffer on earth as well. Three points today. One, Jesus is the Christ. It kind of builds. Two, Jesus is the Christ who suffers. Three, Jesus is the Christ who suffers, and so will his followers. That's the progression of the text this morning. Let's look at verse 27 again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is going on from Bethsaida. He goes 25 miles north to the villages. It's probably these outlying communities of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, named after uh, Augustus Caesar. He ruled the Roman Empire for 57 years. And on the way, Jesus asks a question. Who do people say that I am? 
Now remember, Jesus isn't fishing for information here. He's not without knowledge. Uh, He's not like um, the politicians of today that are trying to um, figure out their latest poll numbers, or um, he's not like someone who's narcissistic looking at the Twitter feed to see um, what's being tweeted about him most recently. Uh, Jesus is getting ready, by asking this question, he's getting ready to to drive home a point, uh, a very important point. One could even say the most important point of his entire ministry. And so, his disciples on the way to Caesarea Philippi answer the question. Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Okay, the rumor mill is really turning now. That's what uh, the crowds, that's what the villages, that's what the people are saying about Jesus. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. So first up, John the Baptist. Well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, um, Herod uh, lobbed, ordered John's head to be cut off. And Herod apparently superstitiously feared that John the Baptist had risen from the dead to avenge his murder, and and people, crowds, evidently, maybe even started this rumor, said the same thing. Next up, Elijah. Now, there was a lot of rumors, particularly in first century Judaism, surrounded uh, around Elijah because of of his um, unique departure from the earth. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Elijah was taken up by body into heaven. So some were saying that Jesus was Elijah returned. And then the third category, one of the prophets. Now, uh, obviously, we've seen uh, Jesus' teaching. It's astonished people uh, beyond uh, measure. Uh, people are floored by some of the things that he's saying. He's drawing a crowd. And so his teachings, I mean, people hadn't seen anything like it in their lifetime. And so they're saying, maybe Jesus is like Moses or, or uh, Jeremiah or one of those, uh, Isaiah even, one of those great prophets, because he certainly teaches like that. But what's interesting when his disciples respond to the question, uh, what they don't say is that there's common speculation that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, To say that Jesus is like John the Baptist, Elijah, a great prophet, or or what we so often hear today, Jesus is a great role model, he's a great teacher, Um, it may seem like an honor, even a compliment, but it's ultimately to deny Jesus' uniqueness and to press Jesus into a service of, of old categories. It's like what Jesus said in another chapter of Mark. It's like pouring new wine into old wineskins. So that's the rumor mill. That's what's happening. So then Jesus puts it on them, and he says to them, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? The you is emphatic. Who do you say that I am? Forget about what the crowds say now. What are you going to do with me? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ. Four words. You are the Christ. I mean, this 
this is it. Like, it seems like in some ways the whole gospel according to Mark has been moving towards this proclamation. When Peter, as a representative for the disciples, a role he often assumes in the gospel according to Mark, he speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. I mean, that, it stresses the Christ. It's the, the fundamental identity of Jesus. It's, it's Jesus being associated with God's end-time salvific agent. In case we need to be careful, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not the Smith to John Smith. Uh, Christ is a title. It literally means anointed or anointed one. The Hebrew rendering of it is Messiah. And by the first century, by the time Jesus is asking these questions, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Um, The title, Christ, had been used to um, identify the promised end times king that would follow in the line of David. The, The Christ was well known that it was promised that he would bring salvation to God's people. It's a title. He says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one, Jesus, that we have all been waiting for. You are the superhuman leader who's going to overthrow Israel's enemies You're going to regather God's people from the four corners of the earth, and you're going to make Jerusalem and Palestine the center of your kingdom, and you are going to establish the perfect reign of God. That's what Peter meant. You are the Christ. You've come to usher all this in. And then as soon as he says this massive statement that Mark has been really, in many ways, gearing up for us, then Jesus follows us up with, in verse 30, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him. What? I mean, we know. Think of the Great Commission passages. We're to go and tell the ends of the earth about Jesus. But in verse 30 of Mark 8, he strictly, he doesn't just charge them, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him. It's almost like a rebuke. He, he's emphasizing, don't tell anyone, not yet. Now, we've seen this throughout Mark. Uh, scholars would call this the Markan secret. Every time Jesus does a miracle, or oftentimes when he does a teaching, then he tells everyone to shut their lips and say nothing. Jesus was very aware that there were powerful forces aligning against him, and he knew that it wasn't the time, not yet, for the confrontation. He also knew, we'll see it in a second, that when Peter said, you are the Christ, what Peter meant was very different than what Jesus meant. Additionally, the crowds, all the peoples, they didn't have the added opportunities to hear Jesus' private teaching, to walk with him like the 12 were walking with him. And, and when, when Peter said, you are the Christ, I mean, what he had in his mind was that uh, really Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government and that rebellion was going to start here and now. And, and if that was communicated far and wide, that idea of the Christ, 
And Jesus' association with that idea of the Christ would actually be a hindrance rather than a help in communicating the good news of the coming rule and reign of God. So he strictly charges them to tell no one, even though Peter just said, you are the Christ, do not tell anyone. They're not going to be released really to proclaim that message until after the resurrection in the book of Mark. Now, if I can go back to a second to that, that question, but who do you say that I am? Um, that's a very important question. And, and Jesus' disciples now in the book are moving from passive recipients to uh, active participants. Uh, we've come to a point now where um, the disciples, and honestly, anyone who hears the name of Jesus must look to Jesus and risk a decision that will either entail a commitment to or a severance from the identity and mission of God. Everyone who has a soul has to do something with the question, who do you say Jesus is? And, and this ultimate question, uh, it's been asked and it's been answered in a myriad of ways, multiplicity of ways throughout human history in the last 2,000 years. Some say Jesus was a great teacher. Others say he was a great moral example. Others say he was a wonderful proponent of social justice and caring for the poor. All the major world religions also have to do something with Jesus. Muslims say he's a prophet of Allah who is second only to Muhammad in importance, but whose true mission was obscured and even deified by Jesus' Christian followers. To Hindus, New Age thinkers, Jesus is an enlightened mystic whose spiritual knowledge can bring about a higher consciousness and union with the divine. To honestly some pseudo-Christian cults, you know, they kind of bear the name of Christianity, but they're they're really cults, um, they say that Jesus is the brother of Satan, whose physical son of a union between Jehovah God and Mary. That's what Mormons believe. Or take Jehovah Witnesses. He's an exalted being, they say Jesus is, who's otherwise known as Michael the archangel. Point being, every world religion, every person who has a soul has to do something with the question, who do you say Jesus is? And Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, and, and I, I pray that we would proclaim Jesus is the Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean that he's the Christ? Well, now Jesus is going to elaborate. He's about to teach plainly as to what that actually means. Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the Christ who will suffer. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this is um, 
the first of three what's called passion predictions in Mark. There's one in Mark chapter 8, there's one in Mark chapter 9, and there's one in Mark chapter 10. If you look at the structure of Mark, uh, Jesus is in Galilee, then in 8, 9, 10, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and then in 11 and following, he's in Jerusalem. That's where he's crucified. That's where he raised from the grave. I mean, that's where uh, the book, the narrative is pushing. And right in the center, 8, 9, 10, we have these, these passion predictions. And this idea that Jesus is teaching that the Son of Man must suffer many things, I mean, it's a shocking pronouncement. Uh, it would totally take the common understanding of the Christ at that time and flip it up on its head. When Jesus uses the term Son of Man, we've seen this already a few times in Mark, he's using a phrase that is found in the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can turn there or you'll see those verses on the screen. I want us to see the context of the phrase Son of Man. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel's having this vision. He says, I I saw in the night visions. And then here's what he sees. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus knew what he was doing when he was invoking the phrase, Son of Man. And he says the Son of Man must suffer many things. In Daniel's vision, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, that's, that's God the Father, and he's, he's sitting on a throne in, in blazing majesty and, and glory. And he's surrounded by the heavenly court. And all of a sudden, the Son of Man comes. And, and he's riding these clouds like a, like a triumphant chariot in. And he's going to go before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is going to give to him. He's going to delegate to him. He's going to uh, empower him with dominion and glory in a kingdom. It's everlasting dominion. It's an everlasting kingdom. And, and the Son of Man is to be uh, exalted, and He has all authority in heaven and on earth, which that fits with the first century understanding of the Christ. But then Jesus connects that image, that triumphant image, with the Son of Man must suffer many things. Wait a minute. I thought the Son of Man was triumphant. How is he going to suffer many things? And then Jesus elaborates and says what um, that suffering will look like. Son of Man will suffer many things. How? How will he suffer? He'll be rejected. Who will reject him? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And not only will he be rejected, he'll be killed. And then we have this allusion to the resurrection. After three days, we'll rise again. Think of those three groups, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. I mean, the the irony here. 
When we think of of Jesus being rejected and crucified, we think of humanity at its worst. You think of the vilest, you think of the worst, you think of the most terrible sinners you can think of. And yet Jesus predicts that the suffering of the Son of Man will come at the hands of the religious leaders. Basically, um, it's not humanity at its worst, but, but really it's humanity at its best. It's the best humanity can muster. Those people will reject and kill the Son of Man. Uh, the elders, it was a group of 70 people who um, uh, really made up, uh, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that made up the Sanhedrin. Uh, the chief priests, it was the, the high priest and his family. Uh, the scribes, they were uh, experts and advisors. They were experts in the law and advisors to the Sanhedrin. And these three groups represented the official seat of power in Judaism. They would be the ones to reject the Son of Man. They would be the ones that would inflict suffering on Him. And yet we get this little hope after He will be killed, but after three days rise again. And then in verse 32, it says that, that Jesus, He said this plainly. There's no, no mystery here. Jesus wasn't trying to cover this up. He wasn't trying to speak in riddles or phrases. He didn't even go parables. He just said it plainly. He said it clearly. He said it boldly. The Son of Man will suffer many things. Well, Peter can't take it. So verse 32, Peter, the one who represented the disciples and said, you are the Christ. Then Peter nicely, you know, he's going to be respectful about it. He takes him aside, and then it says he, he begins to rebuke him. He thinks surely Jesus is mistaken. Jesus must be a little muddy on his purpose. Jesus must be a little confused as to how the Son of Man will actually bring about the redemption of all the peoples, the reconciliation of all the peoples back to the ancient of days. So Peter, well-intentioned, understandably confused, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Emphasis on begins because uh, he doesn't really get through it. Because then verse 33 says, this is Jesus, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. He shuts down Peter's rebuke. He says, I hear your rebuke, and I'm going to up your rebuke. That's, that's hard to say many, many times fast. I'm going to up your rebuke with a counter rebuke. And then he says these famous words to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, I don't know if the disciples believed um, or agreed with what Peter was saying. Maybe they were nudging Peter along. Hey, Peter, maybe you, you should probably correct him. You already spoke up once. You got an attaboy, but now we need you to kind of go a little further. You got a little, little favor with the man, and, and why don't you rebuke him? Uh, maybe the disciples just overheard Peter's beginning of a rebuke. Not sure. All we know, Peter tur- or Jesus turns and sees them, and he corrects the mistaken thought that the Son of Man could reconcile humanity back to God the Father any other way other than suffering, other than being crucified, other than absorbing the wrath of God, other than 
having his hands pierced on the cross, other than having his side stabbed with a spear, other than suffering and being killed. It's at this point, if you remember the acted out parable from the passage we taught on a couple weeks ago, I mean, the disciples are so close. Peter says, you are the Christ. They're so close. And they're like the man who, the blind man who Jesus healed in two stages where um, he says, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Like everything's a little hazy. Everything's a little blurry. I can't quite see clearly. That's what's happening with the disciples. They don't, I mean, they get it. Jesus is the Christ, but they don't really know all that that entails. And we see here as Jesus is teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that that. The only true soul-saving salvation, the only way that happens is through a suffering Messiah. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, He, as God the Father, made Him, Jesus, for our sake, He made Him to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is saying, the suffering Messiah, that that God would make him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him all the peoples who trust in him would become the righteousness of God. We would get his righteousness. We would have his righteousness imputed to us. We would be declared righteous because he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Christ who suffers. And Jesus is the Christ who suffers. And so will his followers on this earth. A, a wrong view of, of understanding, a wrong understanding of the Messiah or the Christ will lead to a wrong understanding or view of discipleship or following him. So he, he goes right into it. After he says to Peter, you have not set your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. He then in verse 34, he calls the crowd to him with his disciples and says to them, you can bring everyone around, okay? It's no longer just Jesus and Peter. It's no longer Jesus, Peter, and the disciples. Now it's all the crowd. He calls the crowd to him and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, the idea of denying oneself, it's, it doesn't just mean like a, like a self-denial or self-discipline. It, it, it literally means to, to renounce, to turn away from, to lay down your personal desires, your personal ambitions, your personal goals. You, you die to them, you lay them down, you turn from them, and you submit all of them to Jesus, who we're claiming to follow. You must deny yourself and take up your 
your cross. Now, that's a common phrase, to take up one's cross. It's my cross to bear, you know, that, that whole phrase. But it, it, it means more than to accept any inconvenience or, or hardship. You know, for instance, um, it's not the easiest thing in the world to have uh, your last name as Pancake, honestly. Um, you know, people will tease you, especially when you're in school. They'll call you Flapjack and Bisquick and French Toast and, and maybe even Waffle. Um, everyone does a double take when you say your name. You know, you, you can't even introduce yourself. You can't go first and last name. You just got to go first name because if you say first and last name, it's like a sucker punch. They think you're messing with them. They think you're a punk. They just, dude, just be honest. Say your real name. Like, that is my real name. In middle school, you know, substitute teachers would be going through the roster and then they get to the P's and then they kind of look and then they, nobody would name their kid Levi Pancake, so they go, Levi Pancaki, you know, like it's French, Levi Pancaki, oui, oui, you know, I say no, my name would be Crepe if I was French, I'm not, I'm, I'm straight up English Pancake, like right there. And, and so, it's just, it's, it's a hardship to have that that name. You don't know what to name your kids. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Nothing, go, things don't go well with pancake that often. And so, um, well, fast forward now, I have a seven-year-old daughter. And um, I go up for our nightly routine. I'm getting ready to read her book. And, and she just got this new book. And so, uh, she wrote her name in the front of the book, Sophia Pancake. But then she put in parentheses, please don't laugh. So, so I'd like, I've been gearing up for this moment. Like, I, like this is the moment. I have, I've lived my whole life for this moment, to have the, you know, the father-to-child talk about what it means to really be a pancake, you know? And so, um, so I sit down with her. I say, sweetheart, why did, you, why did you write that? And she goes, well, you know, when I say my name, people laugh. Sophia, I totally understand. That's, that's my whole life. I get it. And then I begin to explain to her how, you know, the, the last name Pancake, it, it helps you not take yourself too seriously, and, you know, it helps you laugh at yourself. And, and Sophia, in high school, I even run Prom King because there was a thousand people in my graduating class, no one knew one another, and so they thought, Pancake, that's funny, let's make him Prom King. It can help you. People will remember you, it'll make your job application go to the top, like, it's a good thing. And so I thought, like, I was poised for parent speech of the year. Like, I thought I was ready for her to cross out the please don't laugh. Like, she was going to fully embrace it. And so I say to her, so, Sophia, see, you don't have to say please don't laugh. You don't have to write that on any of your papers. She looks at me and she goes, I think I'm going to keep writing it. It's like, dang it. (laughs) Well, at least you can marry out of it or something like that. You know, it's not... And I think I ended the the, the talk with, well, Sophia, it's our cross to bear. You know, something like that. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. As difficult as a last name can be, it's not an inconvenience. It's not a minor hardship. I mean, the cross, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, I mean, this is a death instrument. I mean, it's an image of of repugnance. I mean, we think of the cross and we think of it looking nice in a church or or maybe a piece of jewelry, but but it was an instrument of cruelty and pain and dehumanization, and, and shame. I mean, the goal of the cross was to produce maximum torture, pain, and humiliation. That's what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Then he's going to explain a little more as to why it's worth it. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, that's the, the word good news, will save it. If you try to save your life, Jesus says, if you try to hold on to it, if you try to live for your own self only, you live for your own personal goals, ambitions, if you do that and reject, deny, or just ignore who Jesus is and his calling on our lives as his followers, if we try to do that, Jesus says you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life, i.e. submit those things to Jesus and following him, And if you lose your life for the sake of the gospels, the proclamation of the good news through word and deed, then we will save it. Then we will have life and life to the full. He continues, verse 36, for what, these rhetorical questions, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Saying, good, fine, you, you gain the whole world, great. You have everything this world has to offer. But then if you trade eternal life or your soul for that, he's saying it's a cheap trade. What's the profit if you, if you lose your soul but gain the whole world? Cheap trade. It's like trading LeBron James for uh, not LeBron James. I don't know. I can't think of anyone else. Um, it's like trading Kevin Durant for, for Matthew Delavadova or something. You just don't do that. That's silly. It's a cheap trade. It's a bad trade to trade your soul, your everlasting soul, for this world. Cheap trade. It's foolish. Don't do it, Jesus is saying. For God's way is the better way. For God's way is the way to eternal, infinite, everlasting satisfaction and joy. Everything else, temporary, temporal, not everlasting. Then he says in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now we're getting a little bit of that Daniel 7 glimpse there. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. But Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, if that's how we're going to live, embarrassed, ashamed, muted Christianity, a Christianity that's kind of hidden under the rug, not heralded by our lives, attitudes, actions, words, we're ashamed of him, Jesus goes as far as to say, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. I think it's wise for us to consider, speaking of haunting questions and phrases, this. Are you ashamed of Christ this morning? Would someone look at your life, your decisions, your attitude, your joy, your sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, and would they say, yeah, I think they're ashamed of Jesus. Jesus says, and of my words. Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on marriage? 
Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on sexuality? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on family? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on the church? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on, on what your priorities should be? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on uh, what your involvement in the life of other followers of Christ should look like? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on what your involvement in the world should look like with a missionary outcome? Are you ashamed of Jesus' teaching on discipleship? I mean, uh, please, Lord, convict us, persuade us, remind us of the areas that we might be ashamed that we would turn from those things and live boldly, proudly, and passionately your name, your renown, and your glory. For if we don't, Jesus says, now he's speaking in a, in a hyperbolic way, but nonetheless, this, this is a warning. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, is there not two words that describe this generation right now? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I was reminded in, in considering these questions of, you know, am I ashamed of aspects of Jesus and His words? And I was reminded of the uh, second century early church father, Polycarp. He was really old at this time, and he was arrested for being a Christian. And the Roman proconsul, who was overseeing his trial, once they realized it really was indeed Polycarp, um, they said to him, have some respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Now, ironically, back in the second century, Christians were called atheists because they denied all the Romans' gods, all, all of those. So Christians were called atheists. He says, just, just turn from Jesus. Say, say, down with the Christians or down with the atheists. Just, just turn back to Rome and, and Caesar and Rome's gods. Swear, the proconsul urged, reproach Christ and we will set you free. And Polycarp, 86 years of age, said this, as history goes, I have served him all these years, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Oh, uh, he was then burned alive for that proclamation. Now, I don't think that any of us are going to face a burning at the stake Today, this week, or even in the next few years, I don't really know that for sure, but I don't think so. And yet, how many of us remain quiet, our cheeks blush, when we begin overhearing or even discussing Christ and the things of Christ? How many of us have lost the focus, have not fixed our eyes on Christ but rather turned to the things of the world and are making cheap trades. Church, hear this. Jesus is worthy of our trust. 
Jesus is worthy of all of our future dreams. Jesus is worthy of our lives. It's a good trade. Everlasting life, soul, infinite and eternal joy. The world says, look out for yourself. Numero uno, number one, save yourself, love yourself, pamper yourself, make much of yourself, live for yourself. Narcissism, narcissism is, is the um, value of this age. And multitudes, professing Christians and non-Christians, are, are easing their souls into a living death by the respectable vice of selfishness. And what's the trade? They're losing their souls in the process. There's nothing wrong with bigger houses, a better job, a better paying job, sure. But is that your aim? Are you living for the bigger house? Are you living for the higher salary? Are you living for the nicer car? Are you living for signing your kids up for every sports league under the sun for the off chance that they might make a double A minor league team at some point for three years? Are we making cheap trades? But rather, let's entrust all of our future dreams, all of our future hopes, all of our lives to Christ and allow Him to order how those things are lived out. Live for His glory and find that we then in the process get peace, joy, life, and life to the full. May we not forfeit our souls for things that rust will destroy and that moths will eat and that thieves will break in and steal. He wraps up in in chapter 9, verse 1. It's really a transition verse to what Cody will teach on in the next uh, next week. He says in verse 1, Truly I say to you, there there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there are a lot of interpretations of what that means. Is Jesus talking about his resurrection? Is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Is Jesus talking about his transfiguration? That's going to happen. Verse 2 says, and after six days, it's going to happen six days later. A lot of disagreement, a lot of talk about it. I think the most likely interpretation without, you know, saying for sure, like pinning my hat on that is most likely it relates to the transfiguration, the emphasis on the word some. Some are standing here. Peter, James, John are going to see Jesus in a glorified state, get a glimpse of what that looks like. The conclusion of all this being that Christ's glory will come through suffering. Salvation will come through Christ's suffering. And losing one's life is the only way to save it. I, I want to end with, with one other story I, I came across a couple years ago about a Romanian pastor who was being persecuted named Joseph Son. I probably shared this here, I don't know, five and a half years ago or something like that. But I thought it fit this text, so let me read it again. Uh, the, the Romanian pastor, Joseph Son, uh, at this time, they're being persecuted. Many Christians are. And he's being interrogated by six men because of his proclamation of the gospel. And he said to one of the men who was interrogating him, what is taking place here? This is Son speaking. 
is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do, and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. And every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. He continues, during an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me. I said, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing me. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told me, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I wanted my life, I wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and I decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Church, let's humble ourselves and follow our suffering Christ. Let's humble ourselves and trust Him for the forgiveness of our sins, and let's live a life to the full, and let's change the world for eternity. Doesn't mean you have to go overseas as a full-term missionary. You can change the world by loving your neighbors, by doing the dishes, by making the bed, by honoring your employer, by engaging God through His Word, by serving and loving your brother and sister in the Lord, and a thousand other ways in the mundaneness of everyday life. But may we do all those things in humble submission and adoration to the Son of Man and the King of Kings. Will you pray with me? Father, may we not be ashamed of you. May we not forfeit our souls to gain the world. May we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. We rejoice that you who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. If there's anyone here this morning who have not turned to you for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, we pray that you would do a work, press upon them by means of your Holy Spirit, that they would trust in you 
today for eternal life. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.